0: You see, that's the word picture Paul uses to describe this eager anticipation, looking forward to redemption. And so as we consider the present, we consider the future, we realize, man, this featherweight of current suffering, it can't outpunch the heavyweight of future glory. You're listening to a sermon series titled, Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. As we continue this majestic chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, this morning Paul the Apostle introduces the elephant in the room. What do you mean by the elephant? Well, in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Breviary of Sin, uh, scholar Cornelius Plantigo opens the book with this illustration. He says, in the movie Grand Canyon, an immigration attorney breaks out of a traffic jam and attempts to bypass it. And his route takes him along streets that seem progressively darker and more deserted. Then the predictable nightmare, his expensive car stalls on one of those alarming streets where teenage guardians favor expensive guns and sneakers. The attorney does manage to phone for a tow truck, but before it arrives, five young street toughs surround his disabled car and threaten him with considerable bodily harm. Just in time, the tow truck shows up and its driver, an earnest man begins to hook up the disabled car, but the tough young men protest. The truck driver is interrupting their meal. So the driver takes the leader of the group aside and attempts a five-sentence introduction to metaphysics. Man, he says, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what is here. And in his book, he says the tow truck driver's summary of the human predicament belongs in every book of theology. In short, the world is not as it should be. And so, as we look at Romans chapter 8 in this section, Paul speaks of the elephant in the room. That is the tragic reality that the cosmos has fallen from grace into disgrace, that the world is not as it should be, that the world we live in is a, is a realm of suffering and sorrow sin, and death. But even though that's true, and we'll make a case for today that it is, even though that's true, we do not have to lose heart because one day what was lost in the mountain garden of Eden will be restored. And until that day, along with creation, we're groaning like a woman in labor and we're enduring temporal pain to be sure. We're not minimizing the pain, but it's necessary as we look forward to experiencing and enduring glory. And so today, this morning, we're going to look at three aspects of these seven verses. We're going to see the glory in verses 18 and 19, the garden in verses 20 and 21, and the groaning, verses 22 through 25. So that's where we're going today. Hopefully you're taking notes. We teach through the scriptures verse by verse, and we're going to begin with that first section, the glory. Look with me at verse 18. For I, Paul says, consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, circle that word uh, or phrase, for I consider. This is not where you're sitting back going, I'd consider a road trip. Pastor Pilgrim took a road trip. I'd consider taking one of those one day. It's not meaning I'm subjectively thinking something that may happen one day. It's not a, a thought that Paul is just kind of sort of promoting. What he means here is, I am firmly convinced after reasoning. After weighing the calculations that have been made, I have come to a strong conclusion. Well, what conclusion did Paul come to? His conclusion, as he looks into the world, is that the sufferings that we endure today will be far outweighed by future glory. In other words, future glory packs a bigger punch than present affliction. Isn't that that wonderful? Isn't that glorious good news today for someone like Peggy, who we just heard has suffered sexual trauma through her life to know that there's a future glory that far outweighs uh, that horrible suffering. In fact, when Paul says it's not worth comparing with the glory, I want you to circle that word, the glory. The word is doxa, and it's actually found as bookends of this section of scripture. If we actually uh, cheat a little bit and and look ahead down to verse 30, you'll find it down in verse 30 as well. Those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he Uh, Called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also, there it is, he glorified. And and so, this idea of glory has with it the Old Testament connotation of weight and the majesty of God's presence. The, The weight of glory that we'll experience far exceeds the temporal suffering that almost seems light and inconsequential, as if you were to weigh it. It's like going to the gym and you go behind someone who has just worked out and you go to move the pen. And what he's saying is the pen that you need to move, we need to move it from the very light and momentary spot all the way down. You can't compare the two. Make sure you check the pen, by the way, uh, just service announcement before you begin the weight lifting. And so he calls them, notice the sufferings of this present time. Did you catch that? The sufferings of this present time. By the way, that describes any and all suffering that takes place in the present age. Leon Morris is helpful here. He says, there is suffering that is the direct result of our sinning, and there is suffering that we endure for Christ's sake. Suffering that arises directly from our Christian profession in a world that rejects Christ. But beyond that, there is suffering that arises simply because we are in this imperfect world, right? Not all suffering is because you've sinned. It's just because you live in a sin-saturated and fallen, depraved world. Uh, and so it doesn't mean it's your fault if something happens. That even was a conversation that Jesus' disciples had with him. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? We have to be careful. There's just sin and suffering in the world. And we mentioned it last week, but it is unpopular today in the modern church with our teaching and our singing to speak about the reality of suffering in the Christian's life. We, we don't hear about that often. We don't sing about it often. We certainly don't post about how much we're going to suffer. And some people, when they attempt to evangelize, they will want to share the gospel. And the gospel message to them sounds something like this. Hey, receive Jesus because he saves you from your problems. Uh, But (laughs) that's not the gospel, is it? Just like come to Christ right now. And when you do like all that debt you owe, literally that that student loan debt, he's just going to wipe it away. He's just like a politician, just going to sweep it away. It's going to go away. Um, Is that the gospel? No. If we wanted to be honest, here's what we would say and should say. Receive Jesus because he saves you from your sin, but you can expect to endure many more problems once you do receive him. Only one amen on that one, <laughs> right? I mean, that's a pitch, right? Let's, let's go out with that pitch. Hey, uh, I mean, that doesn't work in sales. I want to sell you this product. Your life's actually going to get worse if you were to buy this product, right? We're not selling a product, though. We're, we're heralding the good news, that Jesus saves, that he redeems. And so the call to follow Christ is a call to take up your cross and die. The call to follow Jesus is an invitation to suffering. It was said at the Nicene Council in May 325, uh, and I I have to validate this truth or this um, statement, but it was said that at the Nicene Council, only Uh, 12 of the 318 delegates did not have some sort of physical ailment where they had lost an eye or a hand or didn't limp on a leg. we will suffer for our faith, and we will suffer in this present age in general. But there's something much more weighty. It's the future glory. And so all of us live in verse 18 in kind of this place of tension. Did you catch that? That we live with a present reality as well as a future glory. And theologians call this the already, but the not yet. So King David is a great example of this. Remember King David, um, we did this in our series last year about King David. uh, And we learned that David was already anointed king by Samuel the prophet. That was an already aspect, but he was not yet crowned king until later. He was inaugurated, not yet crowned. In the same way, Christ's kingdom is... Both now, he's already been inaugurated King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but it's also not yet when he's coronated as King and his consummated return. And when he comes again, he'll put his enemies at his feet and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And then we can truly say, yes, the kingdom has been fully established. So there's the already and the not yet. In one sense, Satan is already a defeated foe. Amen? Amen. But not yet, not fully yet. We have already experienced redemption and adoption, but in another sense, not yet, not fully. Our bodies have yet to be brought to redemption, that final step in our adoption as sons and daughters. So your salvation includes justification, sanctification, glorification, and yet there's kind of an already not yet to our salvation. So the best way to, to, to describe the present age, the already, is one word, suffering. Amen. And yet the best word or way to describe the age to come, the not yet, is glory. So notice verse 19. Verse 19 says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, please circle that incredible two-word phrase. It's one in the Greek, one word, eager longing. I'd love for you to circle that, eager longing. Notice that creation itself is longing for what? He says, for the unveiling, so to speak. The Greek word here is where we get the word apocalypse from. And and apocalypse means to peel back the curtain, to open the veil, to disclose, to reveal. That's where the book Revelation comes from. That's why, by the way, a little sticking point. It's not revelations. It's the singular revelation of Jesus. It is the unveiling, the apocalypse of Jesus. And so creation, notice Paul says, is is waiting with bated breath, for the reveal, the big reveal. Move that bus. Let's see the bride. Let's unveil and see what? Notice, who are the adopted sons of God? The creation itself is longing and waiting with anticipation to see the unveiling of who truly is the adoption or the adopted sons and daughters of God. Did you catch the fact that Paul personifies all of creation here? He says the cosmos itself is like a person waiting, watching, anticipating. And I told you to circle those two words, eager, longing. Fascinated, fascinating Greek word here that's made up of three smaller words. So if you take the Greek word, it's a compound word, and it means away, it has the word away in there, and the head, and to watch. Okay, so you put these words together, and this word means to watch with your head outstretched, like that. So I remember when I was a kid, uh, I used to wait, very young, used to wait to sit on Santa's lap in line like Ralphie, who was later going to shoot his eye out. Uh, And I was a taller kid than most. We just have taller genes. If you see my son in second service, he's, you know, I go to pat him on the shoulder and he's way up here. So we, we have these tall genetics in our family. And so I didn't always have to crane my neck, but I remember wanting to see Santa. And at a certain point in the line, my mom would say, there he is, there's Santa. And I would do this. I would do what this Greek word is saying. I would, I would crane my neck to, to catch a glimpse of the jolly man who sat on a throne of lies. I, I would try to get that vantage point to see him. And that's the word picture, like a child stretching out, craning their neck to get that undistracted look, to fix their gaze. And that word in the New Testament is always used to describe the future. And so that's what the creation itself is doing. It's looking, straining with eager longing with bated breath for that final redemption. Why? Why is that the case? Well, that's the case because of this next section, this next idea, verse 20, the garden. You see, there is a glory we look forward to, but in the meantime, the world is not as it should be. Notice verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of god you see church creation was subjected to futility and frustration because of our federal head adam and his sin in the garden you see this mountain garden that god created we call it eden and this was a place of perfect peace and serenity and wholeness it was inhabited by god's image bearers and the the goal of that garden was to keep covenant to bring glory to God through worshipful obedience and then to enjoy his grace and to one day extend his glory to scatter and to build other blessable communities where God's image bearers would fill the earth and subdue it. And these communities would be characterized by righteousness and justice and generosity and beauty and truth. Now someone, maybe your alarm bells when I say mountain garden, I don't remember Eden being in uh, on a mountain. Well. Uh, it's fascinating that Genesis 2 explains that four rivers flowed out from the garden, and it's both logical and geological that mountains or rivers tend to flow downstream uh, from a higher elevation to a lower. And so it's just a, it's not necessarily there, but it's a fun idea that that's the mount of God, that the garden was an elevated place on a hill. And nonetheless, the image bearers and the, the you could say the, the intent of the garden, right? The image bearers fell. And God's good creation became cursed. We know this. Sin entered the world, Genesis chapter 3, and death through sin. And then Adam and Eve, instead of sent out, commissioned out from the garden, were banished from the garden. And now because of the curse, there are cosmic implications. There are personal implications, but there's also cosmic impacts of death everywhere because Adam disobeyed God. And we feel those little glimpses of death everywhere. We, we, we're reminded daily that we're dying. Uh, even gray hair is a picture of death. And, and yes, thanks for asking. I'm getting some more grays. Thank you for pointing that out. Disease is a picture of death. Graying hair is a picture of death. Stubbing our toe and having those discomfort, discomfortable nerve endings registering to us. These are eschatological reminders of God's reality and the fact that we will stand before the judgment seat of God. But creation itself, in the meantime, was subjected to futility. John Stott uh, remarks that this word futility here means emptiness, purposelessness, or to be transitory. And one scholar quipped that the whole book of Ecclesiastes is a commentary on this verse. Creation was subjected to futility. And there in Ecclesiastes, you just have this chasing after the wind. That's all there is under the sun. So creation, Paul says, has been subjected to the futile and frustrating and seamlessly endless cycle of birth, life, decay, death. And from death we have birth, life, decay, death. And so he says creation, because it's been subjected to that, not willingly, but because of of Adam's fall, it's craning its neck forward to get a glimpse of of a future hope. And Paul says in verse 21, there is a future freedom. There's a future redemption and restoration from this bondage to corruption. You can't escape it under the sun. And we can and should look forward. So I don't know. I don't see a lot of, I don't see a lot of neck craning this morning here in the service. So let's, we're going to do an exercise together. No, we're not literally going to uh, stretch our neck. But, but hold your place here in Romans chapter 8. And turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. Go with me. If you have your Bible, swipe or flip to Isaiah, chapter 11. As you get there, we're going to be in verses 6 through 9. Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. Listen to what Isaiah says. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb... And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child, we have many of those here at our church, shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. I mean, just reading that should invoke that next strain where we go, yes, creation is longing for the garden to be restored. Now, in the verses right before this in Isaiah, we learned the root of Jesse will produce a righteous branch that will bear fruit. And we understand that's Jesus. Jesus is that righteous branch. And he's going to come to judge with righteousness and faithfulness and justice and Clearly, the result of his kingdom will be creation itself experiencing that restoration, that shalom, rather than suffering. And God's renown will go not only from the garden to the edge of the garden, but to the ends of the earth. And so this is somewhat already, we already experienced that. Because right, we're already in this inaugurated kingdom, but it's not yet. We have not yet fully seen the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns. And so what Jesus' resurrection began will find its completion in the new creation. And, and this we read about in, not the book of Revelations, but in Revelation 21, 3-5. through five. Note on the screen with me, he says, Behold the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He, we love this, right? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Behold, I'm making all things new. Now until that day, we groan. The world is not as it should be. There's nothing new under the sun. It's meaningless. It's weeping and it's death and it's mourning and it's pain. It's chasing after the wind, but Jesus makes it all new. In fact, note with me right after this, at the very end of our Bibles, Revelation 22 describes this you could say this garden city and it says also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. That's the end of the book. It's describing this, this future garden city inhabited by Yahweh the king and his image bearers. And this garden city will include a tree that brings life rather than a curse. And this is what we have to hope for. This is what we put our hope in. And this is worth craning our necks to anticipate, uh, along with all of creation. And so creation is groaning. It's looking with anticipation ahead for that moment of redemption, that moment of restoration. And we're not gonna have it uh, in this moment here and now. Um, So what do we do in the meantime? And that's our third section, the groaning. Look with me at verse 22. Paul says, we know, maybe he didn't know, but he says, for we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, please don't misunderstand. Um, Creation's not literally groaning, okay? So please don't make some awkward doctrinal stance when your dog whines. That's verse 22. Like, oh, you're groaning. I can hear it, Fido. That's not the idea at all. What he's saying is, is like a woman in labor, creation is in agony, and like a woman in labor, the birth pains increase in both size and frequency the closer you get to the birth. It's a lot of groaning, it's a lot of wincing, it's a lot of pain-induced lament. If you ever walked in? You haven't. If you're ever to walk in on a woman giving birth, I'm bummed that we didn't have an opportunity with our children. We did uh, emergency C-section for Aiden, and then because of that, we had to uh, do a C-section for our daughter as well. And so we didn't have the moment of experiencing, and I think Jen's happy about that, but we didn't have that. Uh, But if you were to freeze frame that, it's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of pain. Some of you moms are like, yeah, Uh, a lot of um, groaning. And yet, what is after that? And so notice verse 23, he says, there's someone else groaning, not only the creation, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await Or as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, not just creation, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan. We also wait. We're in labor. We're suffering. We're in pain, looking in advance with eager longing for that redemption of what? Of our bodies. In the meantime, we groan. Um, what does it mean to have the first fruits of the Spirit? F.F. Bruce is helpful. He says the indwelling of the Spirit is not only the evidence that God's grace is continually at work within believers now, it is the guarantee of their coming glory and more than the guarantee, it is the first installment of that glory. Now, first fruits could be Paul referring to the Feast of Weeks, which is what Israel celebrated, where they celebrated the reaping of the first of the harvest, the first fruits, And by the way, that happened at Pentecost. Uh, That was the Feast of Weeks. It fell in line with Pentecost where the Spirit was given to the church. Um, Could be that he's referring to that or he could be saying, listen, we have the down payment of the Spirit as Christians, which will guarantee the future completion of the purchase. You put a down payment on something, you're saying, I'll hold this. I'm gonna pay fully later, but here's the down payment. And so I think perhaps Paul meant both. He was referring to possibly... Pentecost, and also uh, the personal aspect of the Spirit in our lives. But notice here that we are still waiting for adoption. Did you catch that? He says, we're waiting eagerly for adoption as sons. Well, wait, pastor. I thought, wait, hold on. I was here last week. You said last week that we already are adopted and past tense. And so now you're saying we're still waiting for adoption. I don't understand. Well, note with me, the phrase right after that. He says, we're, we're eagerly waiting for adoption as sons. And then he, he clarifies that. He says, the redemption of our bodies. So you and I, there's that already not yet. You and I have already been adopted. We've already been redeemed, but not yet bodily. So the sarx, which is the Greek word for the flesh, has yet to be fully eradicated. The soma, the body, has yet to be fully glorified. And so when we are future tense resurrected and given new bodies, what a glorious day that'll be, we will finally be free not only from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, but the very presence of sin. And the adoption we experience now in principle will be fully understood in person on the day of redemption. These broken and frail and dying bodies that remind us of our need for eternity will one day be transformed, 1 Corinthians 15 shows us, into a glorious body, a body that reflects uh, truly the Imago Dei. So then Paul wonderfully reminds us that hope itself, hope itself has an unseen quality about it. Notice verse 24. He says, in this hope, in this future hope of bodily glorification, we were saved. There's the past tense. In this future hope, we were past tense saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So I wanna make sure we clarify biblical terms here. Biblical hope is the joyful, confident expectation of certainty, even when the outcome is yet out of view. Okay, let me repeat that. Biblical hope is the joyful, confident expectation of certainty, even when the outcome is yet uh, out of view. So there's an unseen quality of hope. And that unseen quality allows us to wait with patient endurance. It doesn't mean, oh, I hope. Oh, I hope my team wins this year. And they will, because we have Tom Brady. (laughs) It's more than just, I hope that the weather's nice today. It's more like, I wish. No, it's, it's the confident joyful expectation. It will happen. Uh, and so creation waits with this eager anticipation, albeit with groaning, and, and we await the final glorification of not only our bodies, but the final restoration of all of creation when Jesus makes all things new. And that's what we hope for. And this hope carries us through the suffering. It brings us through the suffering and points us ahead to the future glory. G.K. Chesterton says this. He says, hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It's only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. You see, we have this certainty, and it looks odd to a fallen, broken world. Those Christians come together and joyfully hug one another. They greet each other with joy as they worship something or someone unseen, and they look ahead in the midst of a world that seems like it's It's going down the tubes, and yet they're joyfully anticipating the future. What's up with these people? See, in the midst of a corrupted creation, we of all people can grieve and groan with hope, not as the world does without hope. We, you and I, are confident in the promises of a faithful God. And I've said this before. His credit score of faithfulness, of worthiness, has always stayed true. It's never been something we've had to doubt or question. And so we can look beyond our present difficulty, whatever it may be, and all the varieties that it comes in this morning. And we can look at the, re- the reward and the result ahead, which is a garden restored, and it's a redeemer who's glorious. Uh, I like what Elizabeth Mills wrote. She wrote these words back in the 19th century. Uh, the hymn is called The Realms of the Blessed. So listen to this. She says, we speak of the realms of the blessed. That country so far and so fair, or so bright and so fair, and oft are its glories confess, but what must it be to be there? We speak of its peace and its love, the robes which the glorified wear, the songs of the blood washed above, but what must it be to be there? We speak of its freedom from sin, from sorrow, temptation, and care, from trials without and within, but what must it be to be there? Do thou, Lord, in pleasure or woe, for heaven our spirits prepare, then soon shall we joyfully know and feel what it is to be there. Often what you and I think about and talk about when we say heaven is ultimately the new heavens and the new earth, and that is the garden restored, and that's what we, we look forward to in anticipation, not where some people have said, like, it's going to be great to lay down with Aslan, I can't wait for that, I have my kids play with snakes, I can't wait for that day. No, the joy of the new heavens and the new earth is the presence of Christ, it's to be with Jesus. And so that's what we anticipate, and that's what we crane our necks for. So as we apply this, there's much to apply. Um, But I just want to meditate on three things today. Number one, it's pretty obvious, (laughs) lift up your heads and strain your necks. That might sound weird if you didn't hear the rest of the sermon, but (laughs) lift up your heads. You see, that's the word picture Paul uses to describe this eager anticipation, looking forward to redemption. And so as we consider the present and we consider the future, we realize, man, this featherweight of current suffering, it can't outpunch the heavyweight of future glory. And so let's move the pen. Lift up your head, strain your necks, lift your drooping hands, and let's press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The great reformer Martin Luther said it this way. He said, if we consider the greatness and glory of the life we shall have, we've risen from the dead, it would not be difficult at all for us to bear the concerns of this world. If I believe the word, I shall on the last day after the sentence has been pronounced, not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, and imprisonment, but I shall also say, oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all the godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Christ." And so lift up your heads, strain your necks. Number two, don't lose heart. Instead, rather, take heart. What have we all endured in the last 18 months? We've endured racial tension, a global pandemic, gender confusion, political unrest, theological deconstruction, rampant sensuality, religious apathy, widespread loneliness, crippling anxiety. If you haven't haven't come face to face with some of the struggles you've had personally and you've wondered, what am I going through? Many of us are going through this. In fact, I found recently one out of five people in Western culture suffer from crippling anxiety. One out of five. That means a great handful of you this morning. I I found recently uh, that hundreds of pastors have recently, this last year, quit the ministry completely. And everyone, I think, is overwhelmed, discouraged, kind of like frustrated at what's going on in the world. But Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4, so we don't lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction whatever it may be, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There's a variety of suffering that we can and should expect. A lot of current wasting away, a lot of affliction. But Paul reminds us, that these are light and momentary. And inwardly, even though we're like a woman in labor, we're painfully waiting for something glorious to come. And so we, in the meantime, continue to trust the Lord and be renewed daily. So church, don't lose heart, take heart. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, John 16:33: I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Yeah, I've said this before. That's a, that's a promise sandwich, okay? On, on either side, there is two promises with a command in the middle. Did you catch that? The two promises are, in the world you have tribulation, yay, and I have overcome the world, and <laughs> yay. And in the middle, there's the command that we are to take heart. Why? Because in the middle of a world of suffering and tribulation, there's one who has overcome sin and suffering and death. He's conquered and he is coming and he will restore what was lost in the garden. And in the meantime, we can choose to lose heart or to take heart. It depends where we fix our eyes. We drive by every day the farm up on 64, and there's a different verse if you've seen that, uh, Musgrave Farms. There's a different verse on the hill with the three crosses, and this week it happens to be Philippians 4, 6, and it just says, stop worrying. Left our house this morning, drove by, it said, stop worrying. I'm like, he didn't know that was in the sermon today. But uh, Philippians 4, 6 and 7, you've heard this. Do not be anxious about anything. You guys know this. You've quoted this. Don't be anxious about anything. We've told our wives and our kids, don't be anxious. Do you guys know that it's an unfortunate division of verses that those, those verse divisions were added many years later. They're, those are not necessarily inspired by God, but they were added later for helpful reference. Did you guys know that that verse five to verse six was a very unhelpful uh, addition? Because right before verse six, in context, let me read to you what it actually says. Uh, it says right before that, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Let your reasonableness be evident to all. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. You see, the reason we can put off anxiety and put on prayer and put on peace is rooted not in your own power to do, but it's rooted in the truth that the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. We aren't orphans anymore. We're adopted heirs. He's near to us. He's dear to us. And though, yes, we have tribulations and trouble, we can take heart because Jesus is present with us as he promised until the very end of the age, he's overcome this world, and so that should allow us to take heart. We have a choice to lose heart or to take heart. So finally, number three, what do we need to do in the meantime? Wait with patient hope. Now, I've seen some people wait poorly. You've seen them as well. They, they're in line. They're in a waiting room. Lord, help me. They're in traffic, and they're not waiting very, poor, very well. They're waiting poorly. They're impatient, they're pacing, they're, they're, they're looking not with an excited head crane, but with an angry one. And they're throwing their hands up, they're yelling, they're cursing, they're making a scene. And then there's other people, they're just waiting with quiet resolve. And you're like, how did they do that? They just heard that it's an hour and a half wait to get into the restaurant. And they go, okay. And they go and sit down. Who is that guy? Let me have some of that. So, but listen, our posture as Christians is not to tap our foot and look at our watch and say, okay, God, get on with it. No, no. See, even a waiting room in traffic, those aren't great analogies. A great analogy to think about for us in our waiting is a a war-weary soldier who's holding the line, who's receiving word that reinforcements are coming. Better than that, that the war, war has ended, and the commanding officer is arriving in his might, and until he does, the battle still rages where we are at. Leon Morris said, patience is the attitude of the soldier who in the thick of battle is not dismayed but fights on stoutly, whatever the difficulties. So you and I as Christians, we can look at a world and say it's not as it should be. But we can also trust with anticipation, with patient hope that one day the Redeemer will come and the garden will be restored. Amen? So may we lift our heads, may we strain our necks, may we fix our eyes, may we take heart, may we stand firm until the king returns and restores what he intended from the beginning. I'm going to pray the valley of vision prayer. God, all sufficient, bow your heads with me. King of glory, divine majesty, every perfection adorns your nature and sustains your throne. The heavens and earth are yours. The world is yours in its fullness. Your power created the universe from nothing. Your wisdom has managed all its multiple concerns, presiding over nations, families, individuals. Your goodness is boundless. All creatures wait on you, are supplied by you, are satisfied in you. How precious are the thoughts of your mercy and grace. How excellent your loving kindness that draws men to you. Teach us to place our happiness in you, the blessed God, never seeking life among the dead things of earth, or asking for that which satisfies the deluded. But may we prize the light of your smile, implore the joy of your salvation, and find our heaven in you. You've attended to our happiness more than we can do. Though we are fallen creatures, you've not neglected us. In love and pity, you've provided us a Savior. Apply his redemption to our hearts by justifying our persons and sanctifying our natures. We confess our transgressions, have mercy on us, We are weary, give us rest. We are ignorant, make us wise unto salvation. We are helpless, let your strength be made perfect in our weakness. We are poor and needy, bless us with Christ's unsearchable riches. We are perplexed and tempted, let us travel on unchecked, undismayed, knowing that you have said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Blessed be your name. Father, we thank you this morning for that future redemption. We look forward with anticipation. In the meantime, give us strength to endure the groaning. We love you. We worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for Christ today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisishoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.